Please, congregation, turn within your Bibles in the first place this afternoon to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, the first book of the Bible. We'll read verses 19 to 28 together in connection with a few other passages which help to illuminate and illustrate for us the doctrine of God's sovereign election as we find that doctrine summarized in Article 16 of our Confession of Faith. But we read in the first place from Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 19. Now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within, together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now let's turn to Malachi chapter 1, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. God speaks to his distressed and discouraged people during the days of the restoration. Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." And now, finally, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, read verses 1 through 29. Paul has just spoken of God's everlasting love. There's nothing that can separate God's people from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And now, he begins to say in Romans 9 at verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and, un and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now let's turn our forms and prayers books to Article 16 of our Confession of Faith. Article 16, page 170 in the forms and prayers books. Article 16, the doctrine of election. 
We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, into which they plunged themselves. This the church of Jesus Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you're all quite familiar with that question that our Lord Jesus once posed to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And you'll recall some of the answers that his disciples gave. Some, gave. some say you are John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then you'll recall how Jesus turned the question directly to them, to his disciples. And, and who do you say that I am? To which the apostle Peter replied, we say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, as they come to Article 16 of our confession, I want to begin by asking you a similar sort of question this afternoon. Who do you say that God is? Who do you say that God is? I want to begin by asking that question because the answer that, that we give to that question, I think, can highlight for us just how pastoral and comforting the doctrine of election really is. Who do you say that God is? There are, of course, many correct answers that we could give to that question. We could say, for example, that he's the God of the universe and the creator of the world. And we'd be right. We could say that he's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we'd be right. We could say he's the God of providence, the God who, who works all things together for good. We could say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 that he is the, the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. As we heard this morning, we could say that he is the God who detests our idolatry, who deflates our pride, and who delivers on his word, and again, we'd be right. But the answer to that great question I'd like for us to consider this afternoon is an answer that the Bible gives more than 20 times. In fact, if you were paying close attention, we sang the answer two of those times in the first song we sang this afternoon. Who do you say that God is? my great privilege to declare to you this afternoon that our God is the God of Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that more than 20 times in Holy Scripture, God identifies himself as being the God of Jacob? The significance, of this, the significance of this reality is found when you consider the kind of person that Jacob was. Because when we think about the life of Jacob, I doubt very many of us place him very highly on our, on our list of, of Old Testament saints who are such worthy and honorable characters in the Bible. Because Jacob, we know, was a deceiver. Jacob was, was a twister, a supplanter. He was a heel grabber, as was in, in his very name, Jacob. He came out of the womb trying to supplant his brother, 
And that was characteristic not only of of Jacob's birth, but also of, of the entirety of his life. This was the kind of man that that Jacob was. Boys and girls, what are, the, what are some of the things that first come to mind when, when you think about the life of Jacob? Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind is the way in which Jacob swindled his brother Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. Perhaps not a dishonest thing, but not a very loving or charitable thing to do. Perhaps the second thing that comes to mind is the way in which Jacob deceived his father Isaac. Making Isaac think that, that he was Esau, so that Isaac would give to Jacob Esau's blessing. Deception and trickery seem to have been some of Jacob's go-to tactics to get ahead in this life. While living among the tents of his uncle Laban, Jacob not only took two wives, but he also had children through their servants. And on his way back to the land of his father, Jericho, rather than, than trusting to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, his, his fear of Esau drove him to, to divide his caravan to two parties. So that if Esau was still angry, he would, he would kill the caravan with those whom Jacob loved less. And he, the ones that he loved more would be able to get away. Once they were back in the land of his father, you may recall how his daughter Dinah was defiled by Shechem the Hivite. But, but what did Jacob do about that? Well, he allowed Dinah to be given to Shechem in marriage. And then when his sons broke covenant with Shechem's family and, and slaughtered his whole family while uh, they were still sore from circumcision, you may also recall how Jacob was more concerned with his own name than with the name of the Lord. He was more concerned with his own reputation than with the fact that they had tarnished God's reputation. He said, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Jacob was not the most honorable of Old Testament characters, was he? And we recognize that Jacob's problem wasn't his upbringing. After all, he was a grandson of Abraham, a son of Isaac. Nor was his problem his culture. He was a son of the promised land, circumcised on the eighth day and, and raised in the fear of the Lord. But we recognize that Jacob's problem was our problem. Jacob was a sinner. Jacob was a person who was conceived and born in sin. Jacob was a sinner who although he deserved God's righteous wrath and condemnation, he received God's grace and mercy instead. Why is that? Why did Jacob receive God's grace and mercy? We find the answer summarized here in Article 16 of our Confession of Faith. And, and the Apostle Paul spells it all out quite Clearly in Romans chapter 9, God was gracious toward Jacob because God chose Jacob. God was gracious toward Jacob because God chose Jacob long before Jacob was even born. Without any consideration of Jacob's works. And so Jacob powerfully illustrates for us not only the, the truth, but also the, the wonder of what we confessed here in article 16 of our confession of faith. For we believe that like Jacob, all Adam's descendants have, have fallen into perdition and ruin. This is the sorry sin predicament in which all of mankind now finds itself. 
By Adam's act of disobedience, we confess in Article 14, we separate ourselves from God who was our true life, and we made ourselves guilty before God and, and worthy of physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all our ways. As we heard last time from Article 15, by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of our whole nature and is so vile and enormous in God's sight that in itself it is enough to condemn the whole human race. And this sin nature was the problem that plagued men like Jacob throughout the course of his life. It was this sin nature that that plagued the lives of his descendants, the people of Israel, as, as we've seen so clearly as we've studied First and Second Kings, this downward spiral in, into sin and idolatry. It was due to this sin nature that drove Israel to rebel against the Lord so that eventually they found themselves in exile under the just judgment of the Lord. And it was due to this sin nature that even after the exile, in the days of, of Malachi and the restoration, the people found progress to be so slow and discouraging. It was due to this sin nature that, that it wasn't long before even the priests were offering polluted sacrifices on God's altar. And this sin nature, we confess, is our problem too. This, as Article 15, is, is why we groan and, and long to be set free from this body of death. When we look at the portrait of Jacob's life, it's not hard for us to see some semblance of his life in our own lives, is it? Because how often haven't we, like Jacob, used Satan's devices to get ahead in this life? How often haven't we, like Jacob, been deceivers and liars and supplanters? How often haven't we, like, like Jacob, fallen into that snare that is the fear of man? How often, like Jacob, haven't we cared more about our own names and our own reputation than about God's name and God's reputation? How often haven't we in our sin made ourselves increasingly worthy of God's righteous condemnation? We have an awful lot in common with Jacob, don't we? This is the world's sin predicament, that unless God is gracious to intervene, all people everywhere plunge themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into ruin and perdition. But we can take great comfort this afternoon in knowing that the God of the Bible has shown himself to be as he is, merciful and just. We can take great comfort this afternoon in knowing that the God of infinite justice, the God of infinite holiness is also the God of Jacob is also the God who sovereignly and powerfully and mercifully saves sinners. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And there is no injustice on God's part, says Paul. For none of this depends on human will or exertion, but wholly on God who has mercy. Jacob, you see, isn't listed alongside all those saints in Hebrews chapter 11 because he was such a great man. He is not listed among the saints of Hebrews 11 because he was so good and so righteous in his own right. But Jacob is noted by name in that great chapter because he was a sinner who was saved 
by God's grace. Jacob is, is named in that chapter because God was not ashamed to be called his God, because God was not ashamed to, to attach his name to Jacob's name and to identify himself as, as the God of Jacob. For God loved Jacob. And this, Paul tells in Romans chapter 9, was according to the Lord's sovereign purpose of election. Jacob, of course, is not the first of the Old Testament saints to have been chosen by God, but the election of Jacob stands out in the Old Testament as being the most dramatic. Because to quote Arthur Pink, the the election of Jacob supplies us with the clearest and most unmistakable illustration of the sheer graciousness of God's electing purpose. The election of Jacob, you see, highlights more clearly than any other that God's saving grace is not dependent on something in us, but rather it is the result solely of his sovereign grace and is based on nothing other than God's good pleasure. When Genesis comes to tell us about the generations of Isaac, we learn that his wife, Rebecca, was barren. But, but Isaac called out to the Lord and cried out to the Lord, and God answered, and, and his wife conceived. But there came a time when Rebecca could sense the, the two boys struggling together within her. And so she inquired of the Lord, why, why is this so? Why is this the case? And to that question, what did God say? Two nations are in your womb, and two nations from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. And as Paul explains in Romans 9 Verses 10 to 13, this God declared, not on the basis of, of who Jacob was or, or, or the man Jacob would become or the things that Jacob would do, whether good or bad, but rather this God declared to Rebekah in order that his sovereign purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The God of Jacob, you see, is a God who chooses some and and passes over others. For as our confession states, he is merciful in withdrawing and saving some from the perdition according to his eternal counsel and election in Christ. And he is just in leaving others in their ruin and fall into which they plunge themselves. For God, one pastor has said, does not choose men in the course of time or, or from time to time. But as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Not because of our works or because we were so special or so bright, but rather because he was merciful to choose us in Christ our Lord by his own goodness and grace. You see, contrary to what the Arminians were saying at the time of of this sin of door. It's not as though before time God looked down the quarters of time and said, who will be the most lovely? Who will be the most worthy? Those are the ones I'll, I'll choose and bring to myself. But rather it was entirely of grace. God didn't see that Jacob would be this wonderful man. But Jacob was every bit as worthy of condemnation as was his brother Esau. 
But God in his grace took pity on unworthy, undeserving Jacob, and he loved Jacob, and he patiently bore with Jacob and all his sins and failures. And God brought Jacob all the way to glory, in spite of all Jacob's distrust and disobedience. And that what we read in Romans 8, 28 through 30, there was, there was nothing that, that Jacob could do to, to loosen God's grip on him. There was no sin too great. There was no adversary too strong. Not even death itself could, could separate Jacob the sinner from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus. And this truth we see was at the heart of God's message to the distressed and discouraged people of Israel in Malachi chapter 1. If you were to read through the rest of the book of Malachi, you discover that it would have been perfectly right and perfectly understandable if God had desired to, to begin this prophecy some other way. For example, he could have begun with a word of judgment. We could come to verse 2 and, and read something like, I've decided that I'm done with you. Israel, you've been no different than the world. Your priests despise my name. You all profane my covenant. You, you rob me of your tithes and contributions. And so I'm cutting you off forever because that's what you deserve. But how does God begin instead? The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Beloved, this is truly amazing. I have loved you, says the Lord. And God, knowing the doubts of his people's hearts, addresses the question on their minds. But you say, how have you loved us? To which, what does God say? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau. I have laid to waste his hill country, and have left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, of the sons of Esau, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear them back down. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This was God's message to his people way back then. And this is God's message to his people today. This was God's message. This is his message to the spiritual seed of Abraham. I have loved you. And especially relevant to our study of Article 16, the question might well be raised. Well, well when exactly did this love begin? Is it, and is it possible that this love should ever come to an end? Well, the prophet Jeremiah helps us out with those questions. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, you'll find that God says essentially the same thing as he says to, in Malachi. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God says, I have loved you. But then you'll also notice that in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, that declaration is qualified by the words that follow it. For there God doesn't just say, I have loved you, but there God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. 
This is the same God who said in Jeremiah 17 that that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and and desperately sick. This is the same God who who says that I'm the God who who searches the mind and tests the heart and, and judges every man according to his deeds. But according to his everlasting love, God has chosen to save some from the perdition to which they willingly plunge themselves. And so in this single verse in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, we find the pastoral impact of what we're confessing here in Article 16 of our confession. To quote Gerhardus Voss in this verse, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. His love for us is without beginning. Voss continues, for what we are for him and what he is for us belongs to the realm of eternal values. Without this, we are nothing, but in this, we have everything. In his meditation entitled, The God of Jacob, Arthur Pink goes on to write, Therefore, election is not, as some have supposed, harsh and unjust, But election is a most merciful provision on the part of God. For had he not from the beginning chosen some to salvation, all would have perished. Had he not before the foundation of the world chosen certain ones to be conformed to the image of his son, then the death of his son would have been in vain. For Jesus himself has said that no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent him draws him. Jesus himself has said that he came to to lay down his life for the sheep, those sheep that God had had given to him from before the foundation of the world. You see, boys and girls, we only love God because God first loved us. We only belong to God, not because we were so great, but because God was so gracious. Election is an act of God's saving grace done in accordance with his sovereign purpose. To the end, the church of Christ might respond to him with her solemn praise. And that's the last thing we're going to consider together this afternoon, the church's solemn praise. Verses 19 and following, Paul seems to anticipate the objection that a person might raise against this sovereign purpose of the Lord. After all, if if it is God who softens whom he wills, and if it's God who hardens whom he wills, verse 19, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? How does the apostle answer that objection in verse 20? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
See, congregation, God is free to make with that lump of clay whatever he wills. If he chooses to take from that fallen lump, that fallen lump dead in sin, and and to make something beautiful out of it, that's God's prerogative. He is free to do that. And if he chooses to take from that fallen lump of clay something for dishonorable use, he's free to do that too. God is free. God is free to have mercy on whom he has mercy and to have compassion on whom he will have compassion. God is free to to soften the hearts of some and to allow for a, a hardening effect to happen on others. He's free to choose some and he's free to pass over others and to leave them in their fallen state. And then, of course, we call the doctrine of reprobation. That's the other side of the coin, right? Election, God chooses some. Reprobation, God passes over others. Although the doctrine of reprobation may cause some to tremble, to the the beleaguered believer, the kings of Dort provide great comfort and encouragement. To the beleaguered, worried believer, the canons simply say, continue diligently in the use of the means of grace. And rest in the knowledge that our merciful God has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and that he will not break a bruised reed. Of course, recognize that some in the Reformed tradition have turned the assurance of salvation to some rare jewel that only very few Christians can ever possibly find. But that's not the teaching of the canons of Dort. The canons of Dort say that assurance of one's eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measures. But such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing in themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. The fruits of this assurance the canons teach are that the child of God finds greater cause to humble himself before the face of God and, and to adore the, the unfathomable riches of God's mercy and, and to return God's love to him, that love that he first had for us. That being said, the canons do also warn those who might be living carelessly with no regard for God whatsoever. With regards to the careless, the canons say those who have forgotten God and their Savior Jesus Christ and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and to the pleasures of the flesh, such people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. And so there are indeed some for whom the doctrine of reprobation should indeed give rise to true trembling. As we saw in First Kings and Second Kings 1 this morning, the wrath of God should make all men everywhere tremble before him. The impending wrath of God against sin and unbelief ought to quench and snuff out every ounce of pride that continues to live in our hearts. And so if you're here this afternoon and you're still proud and hard and living for the world, these truths call you and they summon you to 
humble yourself and to look to Christ in repentance and faith. The doctrines of grace are not doctrines that, that puff us up. The doctrine of election that God chooses sinners, that he's chosen you and chosen me, that doctrine isn't meant for, for us to, to look over our shoulders and say, we're a little better than the rest. We're better than those people. Election is aimed at causing us to humble ourselves and to say, look what God has done for me. I was a sinner of the worst kind, and God saved me. The truth of God's sovereign election and reprobation ought to evoke the church's solemn praise as she beholds the wonder of God's sovereign purpose. Suppose we could have read on into chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Romans to help us see the fuller picture of and unity of Paul's thought in these matters, but I think it'll be sufficient for our purposes this afternoon if we simply see how he concludes. You know that in, in chapter 10, Paul writes concerning the, the message of salvation, the call to, to proclaim that message to all people everywhere. How should they hear unless someone preaches to them? And then in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the, the remnant of Israel and God's bringing in of the Gentiles, but then you come to the end of chapter 11, where Paul is brought to give solemn praise to his God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Speaking on the doctrine of election, one pastor has said that perhaps no other doctrine in all of Scripture does more to humble the pride of man and to exalt the, the greatness of God in this reality. That before the foundation of the world, before we were even born, God from eternity past had chosen whom he would draw near unto himself. Perhaps no other doctrine does more to show that majestic greatness of God in comparison to the small tininess of man than to contemplate this, that there is a sovereign, almighty God who has already determined who will enter into that new creation in paradise with him forever. In his commentary on the Belgian Confession, Pastor Danny Hyde, a URC pastor in Oceanside, California, who did not grow up in the Reformed Church, describes his discovery of this glorious doctrine. He describes hearing those words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 1 for perhaps the hundredth time, but finally coming to, to understand them for the first time. Ephesians 1, of course, is where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In commenting on his coming to understand these words for the first time, Pastor Hyde writes, Paul's words knocked me to my knees as I beheld the glory of God as he reveals it so clearly in the purpose of election. 
hearing these words, how can we do anything but burst forth into praise? How can we not get passionate about the God who chose to save worthless worms? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, in law of he predestined us, you and me, to adoption as sons and daughters, that we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High God, as Hosea had proclaimed. And so, congregation, how can we cease from singing his praise? For God has come to a hard-hearted, rebel-hearted people. He has come to you and to me, and he has said, I have loved you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It was this everlasting love that caused him to to give you to Christ from before the foundation of the world. It was this everlasting love that that drove God to send Christ into the world to, to live for you, to die for you. And so as Voss said, herein lies the proof that God loves you today and that he always will. The best proof that God's love for you will never cease lies in the fact that it never began. And so Charles Spurgeon said it well when he said that God's everlasting love is the pillow on which we lay our heads to rest at night. God's everlasting love is the pillow on which we lay our heads to rest at night. We sometimes go to bed and we have all the worries and cares and concerns and anxieties on our minds. But God bids us to lay our heads on his everlasting love. God's everlasting love is what lies behind those comforting words that we sang from Psalm 46. The Lord of hosts, almighty God, is is with us to the end. The God of Jacob is for us a fortress and defense. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's come before him in prayer. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of man, sovereign, especially in our salvation, that from first to last, we confess that salvation is all of God. Lord, we consider what worthless worms we are. We are humbled by the magnitude of your mercy that from before the foundation of the world, you saw people who are not so worthy or so lovely, but they were unworthy and unlovable, and you chose to love them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would cause us to take great heart and great comfort in that truth tonight. For there are times, Lord, when we say with Israel, but how have you loved us? Do you still love us? What about all these sins I committed this day? But Father, you come to us with the message again and again, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Father, we pray that this, the everlasting love of God, would indeed 
be the pillow on which we lay our heads to rest this night and every night until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are blessed with riches beyond all measure. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.